Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 33, we'll get ready to begin. Let's first of all look to God. Lord, thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, your word, it's a light to us. It guides us. It's the very Words from your mouth, we live by them. And so, Lord, we pray, help us to feast this morning on your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 33. Now, it's not a long chapter. It's a great chapter. It says here, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah, unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are those with thee? And he said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. Leah also with her children came near, bowed themselves. After came Joseph near, Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I meant? And he said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand, for therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou was pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. And he said, Let us take our journey, and let us go, and I will go before thee. And he said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender. The flocks and the herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me and the children be able to endure, until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. And Esau said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. And Jacob came to Shalom, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field which he had spread, where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected an alt- there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, what we find here in chapter 33, which is so interesting, is that this is the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. And we know that in the big picture, this is one little part of the big picture. It's not the whole big picture and the reconciliation. There's a bigger picture for Jacob 
just like there's a bigger picture for our lives. I mean, Esau is not the picture as the troubles we have in our lives. That's not really part of the big picture. But what's happened to Jacob here is a typical pattern for what happens in the life of a believer. Jacob, just like you, just like me, just like every person, what happens? We sin, we become a friend of the world, and we become blind to the fact that we have no idea that because of the sin, because of the friendship with the world, we've become an enemy of God. As it says in James 4.4, 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's a frightful words, enemy of God. Every person is just like Jacob as we see him, just oblivious to the fact that the real problem in life is that he was an enemy of God. So as Jacob here comes with some immediate problem in his life, and like, like us, we have an immediate problem in our life. Maybe it's a health issue, or in this case, it was a person who was against him. He thinks that immediate problem is the problem in my life, and if I get this solved, then everything will be fine. So he focused on the immediate problem, and it didn't get resolved. And in this case, he wasn't able, in his first try, to make peace with his enemy Esau, and the problem becomes the driver to God. So if there was no enemy Esau, then he wouldn't, we wouldn't see Jacob wrestling with God. But thank God for the Esau enemies of life, because that's what drives the soul to God. And so all the while, a person never realizes his real problem is not what he thinks his real problem is. His real problem is not his immediate problem. His real problem is that he's an enemy of God, and God doesn't want him to be his enemy, so he allows his problems come to drive him to God. So Jacob turns his focus on God, and then he makes peace with God, and oh, by the way, the problem with Esau is just mysteriously solved. Have you ever read, when you read this chapter 33, did you ever ask yourself the question, what happened with Esau? What occurred with Esau that he goes through this tremendous change of wanting to, vowing to kill Jacob to running and embracing, crying and kissing him? What happened? We don't know. We don't know. Kind of like the love of God. What caused God to love us? We don't know. Something mysterious happened. Something mysterious happened. Okay, that's the way it is. Jacob makes peace with Esau. And that's where we find him now, a different man. He's made peace with God because of chapter 32. Makes peace with Esau because of chapter 32. So we can just see how different Jacob is when we look at how he responds to Esau's first question. Verse 5 here are the first words that these two brothers have exchanged in 21 years. And Esau, it says there, he lifted up his eyes. He saw the women and children and said, who are those with thee? And he said, the children which God hath graciously given thy servants. See, Esau sees the family. He sees 11 or 12 uh, little ones. The eldest one's about uh, 14 years old, and, and they're following, you know, Jacob. And so Esau asks the question, you know, who, who are these? Who are these? Now, what would have been the normal answer to a question like this? I mean, if you were there and someone asked you who those kids were, what would you say? Those are my kids. It's real simple. Those are my kids. I mean, you know, if you went to Denny sometimes, you're little kids, and the waitress asked you, you know, who are these, you know, would you say, well, these are the children that God hath graciously given to me? Would you say that? <laughs> if you did, see the waitress kind of look at you funny. <laughs> Go over to the supervisor, you know, table three. <laughs> Watch out. It's a real nutcase, you know. <laughs> but this is astounding 
the way Jacob, you know, he responds here, he just doesn't give that standard answer like that. And it gives, it's very revealing to us. You know, we, we can learn about Jacob when he said, these are the children which God hath graciously given thy servant. What does it show us about Jacob? It shows us that God was in Jacob's thoughts. You could tell that God was in Jacob's thoughts by the way he talked. Jacob didn't just see his children you know, as a biological event or just it's normal to have, you know, children of a man and woman get married. Jacob saw his children as a gift from God that he had for no other reason but the grace of God. And, and so he said that, he said that, Jacob said that because this shows a difference in Jacob. Now his eyes are constantly on God and it's making a difference in Jacob's talk. It's making a difference in Jacob's trust and it's a state of mind, it's a state of mind, it's a state of heart that uh, David describes in, in Psalm 25, 15, Psalm 25, 15, when David says, mine eyes are ever constantly toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. See, that's the state of mind, that's a state of heart. It's described as mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, that's the state. See, Psalm 25, 15, it describes a focus and an expectation. The focus, mine eyes are ever toward the Lord. This means that in his normal life, his eyes are on God. He's constantly looking to God. He's praying to God. He's looking to God for direction. He's looking to God for guidance. He's looking to God for instruction. What do I do now? And this state of mind and heart is described as God is in all his thoughts. And David drew the contrast between that person that God is in all his thoughts and a person who does not have God in all his thoughts in Psalm 10, 4. Psalm 10, verse 4, he says, the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. He won't go to God because of pride. God is not in all his thoughts. See, isn't it interesting how in Psalm 10, 4, that verse, it doesn't say God was not in any of his thoughts But Psalm 10.4 says God was not in all his thoughts, all his thoughts. That state of mind and heart is a matter of God either being in all the thoughts or God not being in all the thoughts. It will either be God in all the thoughts or God not in all the thoughts. It's just that simple. Now, why do we need God in all our thoughts? Because without God in all our thoughts, we are a generator of evil thoughts. That's our problem. Without God in all our thoughts, we're a generator of evil thoughts, and that's what God calls wicked. And God describes this wickedness of man without God in all his thoughts and generating these evil thoughts. When he told Noah in Genesis 6-5, Genesis 6-5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he's talking about the frequency of the evil thoughts of man without God. And he said, only evil continually. Another place he describes that frequency in Psalm 56, 5. Psalm 56, 5, every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. That's what God's speaking. He says, every day they're changing my words and all their thoughts are against me for evil. And so God talks about the direction of these evil thoughts in man without God. And he talks about that in Isaiah 59, verse 7, Isaiah 59, verse 7, where he says, their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. 
See, those evil thoughts, that's a generator of evil thoughts. Man is a generator of evil thoughts if God is not in all his thoughts. And those evil thoughts in man, without God in his thoughts, are known to the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows them, and he speaks about that in Matthew 9.4, Matthew 9.4, where it says, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, wherefore think ye evil in your hearts. We need, we need God in all our thoughts, because if we don't, our hearts sink back into becoming this generator of evil thoughts. And the Lord Jesus Christ described that dilemma or disease in Matthew 15, 19. Matthew 15, 19, when he said, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness of blasphemies. See, David understood that his heart would become a heart of a, of a generator of evil thoughts unless God was in all his thoughts. So he was sensitive to what takes his eyes off of God. And so second to this, David has an expectation from God where he says, he shall pluck my feet out of the net. So he's expressing his hope that God is going to take his feet out of the net. He's not saying God's gonna prevent my feet from going into the net. But when my feet do go into the net, his expectation is for God to pluck or take his feet out of the net. His eyes are ever toward the Lord to deliver him. See, that's a religion of dependence on God. And why did David, why did he say this? What did he mean when he said pluck? What did David mean when he said he'll pluck my feet out of the net? It's interesting. It's interesting because where that Hebrew word is used, yatzah, where it's used first is in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, where God said in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, tree yielding fruit, whose seed is in itself after his kind. God saw it was good. See, God said, let the earth yatsah. Let the earth bring forth these wonderful vegetation. Wonderful vegetation. So how did the earth, yatsa, how did the earth bring forth vegetation? Miraculously and by God's command. How did David expect his feet to be yatsa, plucked from the net? Miraculously and by God's command. The having his feet plucked out of the net is the opposite of what he spoke about in Psalm 915, Psalm 915. The heathen are sunk down, sunk down. They're drowned, tabas, they're drowned, in the pit that they made, in the net which they hid, is their own foot taken. So when God said that, I mean, really, when God said that he was gonna bring this out of the earth, and David uses the same word, shows an expectation back to God of the kind of way in which he was expecting to be delivered. And Jacob said that God had graciously given him these children. I mean, Jacob's eyes are ever toward the Lord. God was in all his thoughts. So when he uses the word graciously, he says, they're a gift. They're a gift to him. I mean, he said, he didn't deserve them. They were just given to him by the grace of God. Now, after Jacob has finally prevailed on Esau, remember, it was a tense situation uh, about this gift, in verses eight through 12, because Esau, there was no, no, yes, no, oh boy. But Esau says something amazing. He says something amazing to Jacob in verse 12, and he said, let us take our journey and let us go. Wow, 
what's that? Esau wants to be with Jacob? You know, God has made Esau to not only not be Jacob's enemy, but to be Jacob's friend. Now he's his friend, and he he wants to be with him, and he starts off, he's got all these questions in verse 5. You know, who are those with thee? And verse 8, what meanest thee by all this drove which I met? He has so many questions, and Esau feels that there's so much that you and I need to catch up on, Jacob, that's happened over the last 21 years, so let's start right here in the middle of the desert, you know, and, and then Esau says, no, no, wait, this isn't such a good idea. Uh, let's not do this here in the middle of the desert. Uh, let's take our journey. Let's go, and I'll go before you. Esau's really saying at this point, I know you come over to my house, and we're going to catch up on everything. Come on over. Stay a while. We'll talk. We got 21 years to catch up on. I want to know everything. That's really nice. Now, think about if you're Jacob, that sounds really nice. Oh, it's great. You know, I'm sure there's going to be food. and you know, It's a wonderful time of talking and of catching up and telling the stories. And, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just going to be a great time. That's what fellowship is. It's wonderful. Now, Esau has just made a proposal to Jacob. Let us take our journey and let us go. And it's very interesting for Jacob, really exciting, you know. And now Esau's proposal it leaves Jacob with four options. And it's interesting to see these four options and to see the option that Jacob chose. Because Esau's proposal in verse 12 and the four options that Jacob had really give us an illustration of what it means to be inconsiderate of others and what it means to be considerate of others. All right, option one. I get the ball rolling. Option one. Jacob could have turned to his family and said, Esau is my only sibling. He's my twin brother. We fought for 70 years at home. (laughs) And that's funny. I mean, it reminds me of what time when we were telling David, you know, Joseph might join the company of brothers, my sons. And so my son David, Joseph might join the company. And David kind of pauses and he thinks to himself, when we were growing up, we fought with each other. I guess we'll continue the fight now. <laughs> anyway, all right, sorry for that side note. All right, he could have said, Esau is my only sibling. He's my twin brother. We fought for 70 years at home. I haven't seen him for 21 years. We've just been reconciled. I'm so excited. I have so much I want to talk over with him. Hey, you know what? Says your family. The men's servants will bring you along safely while I'll catch up on old times with Esau. Now, if he had done that, that scenario, which he didn't do, that scenario would have been inconsiderate of his family. And if Jacob had chosen that option, Jacob would have only been thinking of himself. Jacob would have been selfish. Jacob would have forsaken his family. I know Christians that forsake their family for church. Uh, every time the church doors open, sometimes every night, they leave their family and they go to church. In essence, they're taking option one and saying to their family, church means a lot to me. I got a lot of friends there. I've got to put God first, so you all stay here at home while I go off to church. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for a man of the house to go off to prayer meeting. It's not at all wrong, is it, Irene? (laughs) Yeah, on Wednesday night, as long as they're not forsaking their family. A person has to be very sensitive to not forsake his family for church. And one reason that Jacob did not do option one is because of how he saw his children. See? How did he call his children? What did he call his children? He says, the, the children, 
in, in verse six, the children which God have graciously given thy servant. So he sees his children as a gift from God. That gift came with responsibilities. And Jacob understood that he had responsibilities of husbandship and he had responsibilities of fatherhood. And Jacob was not just the brother to Esau. Jacob was the husband to Rachel and Leah and the father of 11 boys and at least one daughter. And in verses 13 and 14, he is thinking of them. And you know, the word is interesting, consider. The Hebrew word that's used here has a meaning of separate. Separate, it means to separate. You know, a picture, in other words, you separate. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, I'm trying to say that. You know, I, I love that very, very famous, um, very moving scene in Fiddler on the Roof, which I call uh, is on the other hand scene, you know, where, where Chava, the, the daughter, wants to marry the Gentile Fiedka, the, the Russian, and Chava's father, you know, Tevya, he considers whether or not to reject his daughter, Chava. <laughs> Something a little close to home for me. Every time I look at that, it, it brings tears to my eyes because I experienced that when I married a Gentile. Anyway, so this is this on the other hand scene, and Chava comes to Tevya and begs her father to accept them. And Tevya goes through this thing. He says, accept them? How can I accept them? He says, can I deny everything I believe in? And then he goes, on the other hand, can I deny my own daughter? And then he goes, on the other hand, (laughs) how can I turn my back on my faith, my people? And then he sits there and he says, if I try and bend that far, I'll break on the other hand, no, he says, you know, there is no other hand. And then Tevya screams at Chava, no, no, no. It's a terrible scene. Anyway, that's what it means to consider, to look at on the other hand. But when prejudice takes over, as it did in his case, Tevya stops considering. He says, there is no other hand. The Hebrew word here, bean, means to, it means to separate. Separate your interests from the interests of others. Jacob wanted to go with Esau, But Jacob considered with his, on the other hand, his children and his young animals, and God calls on man to consider two great issues in life. The first issue is in Deuteronomy 32, 29, where God says, oh, that they were wise and they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. See, the first issue that God wants man to consider is, what's going to happen to me when I die? What's going to happen to me after I die? There's a Holocaust survivor right now in his 80s. He's calling for the rabbi because he wants, as he says, assurance. He's thinking about what's going to happen to me when I die. The second great issue that God calls man to consider is given to us in, in Isaiah 1, Isaiah 1, 3, where it says, the ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his mother's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider God is saying his people do not consider how he has taken care of them. And then later on in that chapter, in verse 18, Isaiah 118, Isaiah 118, he says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So God is saying that his people are not considering that their sins can be forgiven.
Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org, or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E. Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Starting September 25th, join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. On opening day, September 25th, we'll have Phil's Barbecue with special guest musician Jim Earp. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher Tom Cantor in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship. <laughs> 